0: Thank you. I thought I'd start with just a quick word about what I do, uh, where I'm coming from, and then um, launch in (coughs) to the first thing we'll be doing. I work for an organization called Labri Fellowship. It's just the French word for shelter. L apostrophe A B R I. Started in some of you may be familiar with it. Some, probably most, not. It was started by Francis and Edith Schaefer about mid 1950s in Switzerland. Uh, it spread, the center of gravity is still in Europe, uh, Switzerland, Holland, Sweden, England, but also with two in this country, two branches in this country, uh, one in Australia, uh, and one in Brazil. But, uh, what it is, is, what it developed into is the Schaefer family just opening their home to anybody who wanted to come and think, study, argue, pray, whatever, to do with the Christian faith. Uh, and it became known as a place where I've stumbled in there myself, trying to keep from getting drafted in 1964, just after I finished college. And, and uh, uh, by accident, as it were, and not a Christian at all at that point. Uh, and it was just set up so you could come, you could hear the Christian faith presented, and all your arguments were on the table. Uh, people would come from every which perspective, and anything was fair game, and you wouldn't have anything stuffed down your throat. And uh, so it was a tremendously helpful thing for me at that point. I became a Christian over the course of a year after that, but the way it's worked out now, the shape of it, come on ahead in, uh, <clears throat> is um, that if someone comes to us, we, you have to be 18 at least, no one under 18. That's for insurance reasons, not because people under 18 are unable to deal with the situation, but, but um, and people up to their 70s. We call them all students, however, however old they are, but one of us would sit down with each person who arrives and find out, where are you? What's your story? What do you hope to get from your time with us? And then we work out a sort of a tailor-made curriculum for each person, depending on where they're at. Christian, not Christian, what their experience has been, totally cheesed off about the church, hopeful about this, discouraged about that, whatever. Uh, and half the day would be spent on that, working on that curriculum. The other half we put them to work, keeping the place going, preparing meals, doing laundry, splitting wood, doing maintenance, whatever needs to be done. And a huge emphasis all the while on discussion, on free-for-all, open discussion. Um, Which does not, I think what we found is there's not that much, not that many contexts which welcome that. Just free-for-all, pushing back, hearing something, and being able to push back and say, wait a minute, I don't don't agree with this. How do you make sense of that? So that's in a very, very nutshell, nutshell what we do. Uh, People are staying with us. It's residential. They stay from, because the study is... Uh, individually structured as opposed to taking a course together with a lot of other people, uh, people can come for a weekend or a long week or a, two or three months. So it's a mixture of people coming and going that whole time. Uh, we're in Ma- in Southborough, Massachusetts. This woman gave us an old mansion that we've worked on and added another house to it, and we take up to about 18 people at a time. And... Uh, that's what I do. Anyone wants to talk more about that, I'm happy to talk more about it. But uh, <clears throat> uh, I've been a pastor before, but this is what I've been uh, doing for the last 30 years or so. Okay, this series on sentimentality and cynicism uh, is something been very interesting to me. Uh, it's not... I'm not taking a Bible passage and expositing it. I'm referring to some Bible passages, but I'm really looking at how do we experience the world as Christians. For those of you here who are Christians and those who may not be, uh, it'll be an interesting way to give a a look to the Christian faith. Uh, Before we begin, I'd like to just uh, begin with prayer myself here. So can we pray together for a second? Our God, be with us as we are here together. And we think of the time commitment that everyone's taken to be out and away from studies and from all sorts of other things and work. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this really well and effectively for each of us, that you'd help us to draw close to you, to uh, understand more clearly who you are and what our lives are meant to mean before you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, about the the topics here. Uh, sentimentality and cynicism. They're sort of opposites. I'm going to be defining both of them not as just generic optimism and pessimism. I'm going to be defining both of them as narrower, more sort of uh, things that you can get a hold of than just optimism and pessimism. But I think they have an enormous impact on us all. They... To some degree form a lens through which we see the world and express our faith. Uh, we Christians, in my way of thinking, don't think about them enough. That's why I'm trying to think about them out loud here, uh, because they're so powerful and so important uh, to, to, to the way we live. Uh, to discipleship, to what it is to be a disciple of Christ. That's the first thing, to our own The shape of our own lives. The second thing, which is also my second axe to grind here, which I'll be grinding throughout the weekend, is if those of you are Christians here, we want to know and learn how we can communicate the truth of Christ better to the world around us that doesn't understand it, doesn't want to hear it sometimes, and certainly doesn't believe it. And I think both these topics, cynicism and sentimentality, are very, very important in terms of what those who are not Christians perceive. And what affects them and where they're standing and what uh, affects their apprehension of the Christian faith. So I'll be dealing with sort of two, juggling two uh, themes here. Um, in LeBrie we've <clears throat> for ages talked about, and I think this may go back to Calvin. I'm not sure how far back it goes, but the idea of every human being is a glorious ruin. It's not a bad definition of a human being. Uh, a glorious ruin. Uh, When I wasn't a Christian, one of the things that convinced me of the truth of Christianity was that it was the only perspective, the only view of the world that had an explanation for both glory and ruin in human nature. I've seen lots of people and lots of worldviews that would say, oh, what a glory we are, how wonderful we are, how awesome it is, all the things we do, our imagination, our creativity, but would not deal with the ruin. Others would deal with the ruin. And have no room for the glory. I think the Christian faith really alone accounts for both glory and ruin. Now, um, the the direction here, we're taking, and I'll be reminding you of this again and again, is that sentimentality, uh, among other things, sees only glory and no ruin. Cynicism sees ruin and not much glory. Now, both of them, as I said, are, are narrower than those categories, but but uh, that's the direction we're going in. I'm seeing them both as distortions going in the opposite directions, but both in our society have a big leverage on us, have all sorts of meat hooks on us that push us and pull us through our imagination, through media, through all sorts of different things. The, the sort of exercise we'll be doing in a way, if, we, if you want to look, uh, think of a, a biblical rubric, under it would be Matthew 10, verse 16, See, I am sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. How in the world do you get to be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove? What does that look like? As over and against what? Uh, And and uh, that's the sort of would be a a, a big picture theme of what we're what we're doing here. I got interested in sentimentality by writing a book on cynicism, and and. Because the sentimentalist is in the gun sights of the cynic. The the sentimentalist is... Cynicism has a love-hate relationship with sentimentality. It it hates sentimentality because it scorns it. thinks It's it's naive, it's stupid, it's it's dishonest, it's everything. But also the cynic needs the sentimentalist because the sentimentalism is the place the cynic gets to prove his point or her point again and again and again. In other words, it's, it's a favorite, usable enemy. And so... Uh, having written a whole book on cynicism, I I decided to lo- let's do some work on sentimentality as well. Uh, Oscar Wilde once said that sentimentality is what happens when the cynic goes on a bank holiday. That's British for vacation. Uh, <laughs> uh, so sentimentality, and and here again, there are, there are these two sides. One, it affects us, the way we live, the way we see the world, and also it radically affects... Um, well, uh, the people we see and talk to and affects their ability to understand christ uh, i 'll give you a quick introduction to what i 'm how in defining sentimentality this morning, then look much more thoroughly at, at that, and then shift uh, to look at it more of a Christian analysis or evaluation of it i 'm indebted to a guy called jeremy Begby i don 't know if any of you run across him he 's a christian uh, Musician, aesthetics, teacher, theologian, and so on, <clears throat> for these three categories, which I found very useful. So, I, I see sentimentality in its full form as made up of three elements. I'll give you them fast here, and then in a minute I'll lay them out for you, uh, in, as I see them around us in the culture. First, sentimentality frames the world without sin, evil, brokenness, ugliness, cruelty, complexity, or confusion. Okay? Simplified, nice world. Uh, these things are denied, trivialized, euphemized. It's a world of niceness, warmth, harmony, and simplicity. That's the point one. Point two, and this is a little tougher to get a hold of, so I'll be spending more time on this later. Sentimentality is self-referential emotion. It's a turning of your feelings back on your feelings. Feeling about yourself feeling. Uh, this means that people who are in the grip of sentimentality, who think they are in love, may actually not so much love the other person as love their own emotions about the other person. Stop and think about that for a minute. That's a, quite a difference. Uh, between really loving another person for who they are and loving the, may, the way they make you feel when you're with them. Third element, sentimental emotions do not result in responsible action. They stifle responsible or appropriate action. This makes sense. If feelings are self-referential, they're about me and uh, not about the outside world, sentimental emotions somehow distract me, anesthetize me, whatever, from what might be an appropriate response to a strong emotion. Uh, when all three of these are present, you have full-bore sentimentality. Obviously, at all kinds of times, you don't have all three. Uh, but, but there's a certain uh, twisted coherence or interdependence between these three elements that really feed each other. Uh, and sentimentality is not just found in the stores that sell Hallmark cards or in 1940s movies. Uh, it's found all over the place. It's found all over the place. So let me go through those three things again, uh, with an emphasis on how I see them all around us. First, a denial or evasion or a trivializing of evil and brokenness in society. Sentimentality is threatened by seeing evil straight on in its danger, in its ugliness, in its cruelty, its guilt, its emptiness. Uh, the sentimentalist is averse to the idea that all people have a natural capacity, even perhaps a propensity, to evil. Uh, this dis- disrupts the nostalgia for the past and dreams for the future. Uh, the sentimentality sees through a lens of innocence. Uh, and, and evil and sin are not allowed to upset a, a utopia of niceness. Niceness is a, is a big uh, sentimentalist word. Uh, and denial of sin and evil isn't hard to do if you can choose what you look at each day and you choose the input that comes into your head into your mind and heart uh, and, and uh, it, it makes self-deception very easy in the modern IT world we have a tremendous capacity to feed ourselves our minds exactly what we want to feed ourselves as opposed to letting the, uh, the a nasty world sort of cut across my uh, dreams Actually, a classic example of almost anybody writing on sentimentality is the, the, the Nazi war propaganda machine in the 1930s devised by Goebbels. Particularly the music on the radio in Germany in the 1930s, it's intriguing, was not uh, Wagner and, and militaristic marches that you might associate with Nazism. It was sweet, soppy love songs. Day in and day out, and day in and day out, and day in and day out, love songs. Now, don't think about anything very hard, but sweet songs, uh, syrupy, hour after hour, year after year, as Hitler was turning the country into a police state built on a racist nightmare. Uh, if you've read Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, hopefully some of you have read Brave New World, it's his future dystopia that uh, people are controlled not by force or by fear well, but by pleasure. And endless, endless sentimental cliches, as well as a powerful uh, feel-good drug. But endless upbeat slogans and, and nauseating um, uh, sort of appeals to feeling good. Uh, media sentimentality is enormous today. Sentimentality is a huge... Uh, power that that uh, uh, that advertising has as well. Um, in the media, it starts early. Children are told by Barney that the world is wonderful, that everybody loves them, and that they can have whatever they want by wishing for it. Now, let me just stop and think seriously: Is that what you'll want to teach your children? That's what they're getting. Uh, Walt Disney has given us, in the words of one scholar, a world without dirt, cruelty, or complexity. Also without God, church, uh, or church, and with plenty of niceness, simplicity, warmth, optimism, and fantastic marketing. If any of you watched uh, public television, you're probably studying much too hard to ever watch much television, but the public television every once in a while does uh, fundraisers. And uh, these are awful. Occasions usually, but recently they've done uh, sort of uh, James Taylor commemorative concerts, and James Taylor will get up, get up there and he'll uh, they'll have a concert, and that that draws out all the people to give, which shows what age people are who are giving to. to <laughs> but but uh, and the whole course of the concert, it's promised that at the end he will sing "Fire and Rain." Anybody ever heard "Fire"? And, his song "Fire and Rain." Okay, well, see, that's that's amazing that some of you. That, that was a that was number three in the country in 1970. That's a long time ago, especially <laughs> I mean that's light years ago when when you think of of, uh, of the, the turnover of pop music. Uh, you can still hear it 39 years later, regularly in your dentist office, in the airport, or in an elevator. Any potentially stressful place or situation, you hear the voice of James Taylor and Simon and Garfunkel and some other people with very soothing voices. But you know, the, so- the song Fire and Rain is a story, He's it's autobiographical, it's a, it's a song about the suicide of a very close friend, his own heroin addiction and withdrawal, and suicidal inclinations, clinical depression, for which he was hospitalized several times, and the collapse of his career. When he sings it on this concert... At this concert, he sings it with a huge grin. I mean, I don't know, maybe people have said, wondered when I've mentioned this. Well, no wonder he's made a mint off it. But, but he's grinning about the money, but I don't think he's grinning about the money. Because the whole crowd is grinning and swaying. Uh, with this song, as he sings this song about heroin addiction, suicide, and, you know, a mental breakdown. And, and it's, a, it's a nostalgia bath. It's completely, it's an experience totally disconnected from the meaning of the lyrics. Uh, this is sort of a a high point of media or musical sentimentality. I guess he is perhaps the king of airport music. Uh, and, and sentiment, because my point is that sentimentality can filter out evil, cruelty, emptiness, desperate depression, uh, and leave you with something to smile about, something soothing. Something comforting, something positive. Uh, you think of how many people, by intention, maintain a complete diet of stories, whether they be in film or print, which have impossibly unrealistic happy endings. <laughs> and do it by intention, by special, careful design. I, and uh, how many Christians do that as well? Just make sure, does this have a happy ending? Okay. I'll, I, I'll read this, I'll dare to, to, to watch this movie. I even talked to a woman once who had what he, she called the, the pink, my pink cloud theory of evil. And anything could be wrong in the world and she would surround it mentally with a pink cloud and then she would blow and the pink cloud would drift away and she'd be fine. No problem. Okay, you get a picture of what I'm trying to say. Denial of evil, euphemizing evil, <clears throat> brokenness, dirt, cruelty, uh, uh, disappointment. <clears throat> the second uh, element here is self-referential emotion. British philosopher Roger Scruton uh, put a sentimentality is that particular human vice which consists in directing your emotions toward your own emotions as to be the subject of of a story told by yourself. Uh, One of the most interesting examples, this to me is a famous poem by, it's in anybody, any anthology of English poetry in the last, for the 19th century, of Tennyson's poem, In Memoriam. It's a whacking, I'm sure some of you have read it. Whacking, it's a 50 page long poem in most uh, books. It's about the death of a, of a young man, his closest friend, but at, he died at 22 years old, Arthur Hallam, who was also uh, a collaborator with Tennyson in his writing of poetry, and he was the fiancé of Tennyson's sister. So it was a huge shock to him But the, when this man died. Uh, but in this 50-page poem, nothing is said about the man himself. You don't learn anything about Arthur Hallam it 's all about the trauma Tennyson himself experienced at his death. You learn nothing about the man who died it was tennyson 's grief tennyson 's suffering the trials to tennyson 's faith fair enough but it's the almost the whole thing is self referential think of the this is again a bit early but but i 'm I'm sure you 've run across stories about it princess diana 's funeral and where the Helen Mirren film was. The Queen coming out more recently. Um, it was an amazing phenomenon, a psychological, a psychosocial phenomenon, w- the response this got to not just English people, but people all over the world. But enough I so I once did a lecture on it back uh, then, the, the, the phenomenon. But what was interesting in doing that work was that, was that there's thousands of interviews with people about why it upset them so much and what it meant to them about their own feelings about her death and it was the intriguing thing that again and again and again you found was that her death was something that had happened to them and what they wanted to talk about in any interview is how it had made them feel they didn't particularly want to talk that much about Princess Diana all the things she did do or didn't do or right or wrong or whatever but they wanted to talk about how her death had made them feel Uh, after watching the Helen Mirren film if any of you have seen that the, The Queen uh, and you seen that Rose? Yeah, a couple of people have but, but uh you you're you 're led to have sympathy with um, Tony Blair and so on and and, uh, and and no sympathy with the royal family after I did a lot of work on sentimentality after that, and I uh, tend to have more sympathy with the royal family now because uh, they were uncomprehending about the what 's what's what they call conspicuous compassion uh well-known in media studies, the the, the the deep pleasure people have of, of of a public demonstration of sorrow or strong emotion or compassion, uh, the buzz that crying on television gives you, um, when you know other people are crying on television for the same reason, the sense of unity uh, in in uh, in demonstration of compassion or whatever. Uh, is is, a, is this tremendous uh, swirling spirit that is the, that caught up that experience. We live in a society where everything is scripted. I think of the world of politicians and celebrities where every move uh, is scripted and spun. Uh, I remember even as long ago as the 1960s, the first trip the Beatles made to this country, their manager required that every single photograph that was released... Of them in their whole tour would have to go across his deck first. Uh, there was no photograph was allowed to be released of the Beatles in their whole trip across the U.S. Uh, this was in 1960s. I don't know, 63 or something like that. So this is this is very very deeply been going on a long time, but it's very very deeply uh, grounded in, in our in our media culture and political culture. Think of the joy or the the excitement when people hear. Um, Catch a politician saying something that he said when he didn't know the mic was still on. You know, and, and everybody goes berserk. Wow, yes, here we, here, listen to this. And it gets on YouTube and everything, and, and everybody knows it around the world. Because, uh, you get a word that's not protected by all the spin doctors. You get something that's not, that hasn't been doctored up and processed for your, for your consumption. Uh, but something that might be his own emotions, his own real and spontaneous feelings, his, his authentic self. But then we hear from the critics of sentimentality, not so fast. Don't you see that our sentimentalized society also teaches you what to feel? Teaches you what, to, what you need to feel in order to feel good about yourself. If you feel this way, then it's okay to feel good about yourself. Uh, there are books like Faking It and uh, p- the, the Post-Emotional Society by a guy called Peter Mestrovic, which is fascinating. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a society that wallows in emotion, he sees it as a post- post-emotional society because emotion is so contrived and so forced on people that their real emotions are buried uh, very deep. He believes that we have real authentic emotions, they're there, but they're buried under feelings that we feel that we are meant to feel, in whatever situation we're in because we're told what we ought to be feeling in whatever situation we're in Um, so even though all this emphasis on emotion uh, he sees us in a post-emotional society or T.S. Eliot saying sentimentality causes us not merely to write in cliches but to feel in cliches lest we be troubled by the truth of our condition Eliot is brutal here (laughs) to feel in cliches, lest we be troubled by the truth of our condition. D. H. Lawrence, in a classic statement of sentimentalism, sentimentalism is the working off on yourself of feelings you haven't really got. We all want to have certain feelings, feelings of love, of passionate sex, of kindliness, and so forth. Very few people feel love or sex, passion, or kindliness, or anything else that goes all that deep. So the mass just fake these feelings inside themselves. Faked feelings. The world is all gummy with them. They are better than real feeling because you can spit them out when you brush your teeth and then tomorrow you can fake them afresh. That's D.H. Lawrence. (laughs) But an interesting spin. Sentimentality in the arts. This is where I get get myself into trouble. If I haven't already. Um... Let me start with, with uh, well, I, I'll just mention a word about about kitsch. This is the, tr- the troublesome part. Um, let me start with the most basic. Most lawn ornaments are kitsch. Classic, the cat, classic kitsch icon is the plastic pink flamingo that goes on your lawn. Uh, I have one in the library art collection that I would have brought along if I'd had the room. Uh, Velvet Elvis portraits are kitsch, as are velvet portraits of John Wayne, Dale Earnhardt, and Jesus. Paintings in motel lobbies and bedrooms of waifs with huge eyes are kitsch. Some people, and I'm not saying myself necessarily, would consider the paintings of Thomas Kincaid to be kitsch. (laughs) Uh, Some of the elements of kitsch, Uh, you see... It has, it's obviously a a German word, goes back quite a ways, it's actually not a straight German word, but it comes from a German dialect, Uh, originally used meaning to scrape up manure and mud from the street. (laughs) (laughs) It started to be used in Munich in the 1860s and 70s to describe the, interestingly, the cheesy slaps together attempts at art, mass produced, sold cheap to people who knew no better, but as rising bourgeoisie wanted to have the sophistication of possessing art, having real art on their own, so it was made. They they owned art. It starts to be used in English much more in the 1930s. A lot of Marxist aestheticians did some fascinating work on it. Uh, but but kitsch is mass-produced. It's Poor quality, it's, it's a shallow substitute for real art, it's been it's driven by the needs of the market. It's commercial, cliched, trite. It's art designed to be used to create an emotional uplift and create the illusion of social connection with others, warmth, warmth and niceness. Its content is sentimental, it tries to help you fake an emotion that you have not earned. Uh, it doesn't suggest such a thing as serious thought or reflection, either by the artist or the viewer. Doesn't challenge or stretch us. It, it offers us a cheap comfort, warm feelings of niceness. Um, this is where um, uh, a, a lot of discussion in, in art circles today is. A lot of the explanation of 20th century and 21st century art is the the the, the, the fear of real artists of producing kitsch, of uh, the need to free themselves from uh, kitsch. You could even explain Andy Warhol, if you're familiar with Andy Warhol's work, which is, some people would describe that as preemptive kitsch. In a world where all art is kitsch, because everything's been done, the only thing left to do is to do something intentionally so kitschy that everybody knows you don't mean it. So you're you're doing ironic kitsch. So you do Marilyn Monroe, a thousand prints of Marilyn Monroe's face that are all identical, and everybody knows you're not, uh, that... uh, that you're doing you're doing the kitschiness on purpose. So that removes you a little bit from it. So if any of you read much of Milan Kundera, like the unbearable lightness of being, and if you think he's an absolute hater of kitsch because he experienced it a lot as a Czech in, uh, in the communist propaganda in Czechoslovakia before 1989. Uh, if you read the unbearable lightness of being, you have one of the classic passages on kitsch there. So that's just, I just mentioned Kitsch because that's that's sentimentality into the into the in, into the art world. <clears throat> Third element here is emotion without appropriate costly response. It's a famous story uh, from the Victorian era of a gentleman and his wife go to a theater. I think it's in London. In their carriage on a very very cold night, which is snowing, they're profoundly moved by a play which. Uh, leaves them both in tears, a story of injustice and suffering uh, perpetrated on poor people who are helpless to resist it. When the play is over, they come out of the theater, they find that their their uh, <clears throat> um, carriage driver, because he 'd almost been frozen to death, had neglected to sweep the snow from the step. so the lady getting into the carriage got her uh, feet covered with snow. The gentleman grabs the horsewhip and horsewhips the carriage driver for not for not um, cleaning off the step so his wife can get into the carriage. That that would be a, that's often given as a classic description of sentimentality disconnected from real life, powerful emotion, powerful emotion. They were in tears inside the theater, but in their own imaginative world, in the artificial world. But real life it doesn't touch it. Real life it doesn't doesn't result. The feelings of compassion they felt in the theater had no effect on. Uh, what they did in the real world when they came out. Uh, the problem is not with the presence of emotion. It's not that strong emotion is bad or any emotion is bad. Uh, the, the, the question is, what happens to that emotion? How, what, where does it go? How does it get expressed? Um, I think we're all used to hearing sentimental cliches about expressions of feeling, maybe strong expressions of feeling, uh, but, but that have no connection to action. I have a, few, a couple of powerful, uh, memories of people using the phrase, I'll always be there for you. I mean, that's a wonderful thing to say if you mean it. If you're gonna be always there, that's, that's, you know, no arguments, uh, with that. But I, this was said, uh, by a guy divorcing his wife to his son, I'll always be there for you. Even though I'm leaving now, I'll always be there for you. Uh, he wasn't. The son had a nervous breakdown. Uh, son dropped out of college. Uh, had a horrendous three or four years before he finally got his, he wasn't anywhere near him. But, I'll always be there for you. Or, you mean more to me than you can ever know. Great. That sounds, that's terrific. But is that really where it's at? Is that gonna be followed by action? Uh, where this, this, uh, wonderful cliches all around that, that end up having no traction in the real world. Uh, Oscar Wilde, again, the sentimentalist desires to have the luxury of of an emotion without paying for it. They're always trying to get their emotion on the credit and refuse to pay the bill when it comes in. Interesting. Another whole area people work on with with sentimentality is is television news. What what is it designed to do? Of course, it's designed to keep you from changing stations because they've got to uh, make money. So they got to, to keep you from changing stations. Um, how does it work? Uh, well, some people suggest that much of television news is designed to make you feel good about yourself for feeling bad. Okay? You see what I'm uh, In other words, to stimulate feelings of compassion, and once you feel compassion for the appropriate disaster in the world uh then you feel good as your, about yourself for experiencing that compassion uh designed to engage your emotions not that you would ever do anything about them how could you the disasters are in all corners of the earth coming every few seconds over the television screen to you you couldn't possibly do anything about them but nonetheless feeling a certain satisfaction of your own compassion for it uh, for for the people um, far more than than uh than, than any real concern that could ever uh, reach to those people. Neil Postman once said that uh, the only thing people ever do anything about in the evening news is the weather report. Uh, that's not probably totally true, but but uh, he has some sort of a point. Uh, we can see this aspect of sentimentality identified and exposed and skewered in many places in the Bible. Um, <clears throat> It's no good to speak, uh, and feel lovely platitudes and cliches about love, service, compassion, sensitivity, suffering, pity, justice, beauty, but do nothing for these. You think of the 1st John 3.18, let us love not in word or in speech, but in truth and action. It's quite possible to love just in words, spinning free, not much, not much in action. Or, to me, one of the most fascinating biblical passages, that, that gets the whole of what I've been saying so far here is is in James 5 uh, James 2 15 to 17 if a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them go in peace keep warm and eat your fill and yet you do nothing you, you do not supply their bodily needs what is the good of that now if you stop and think about it for a minute all three elements that I've described of sentimentality are right there in those two verses Uh... It's, it's wonderful. It's possible to have wonderful sentiments for other people of peace, warmth, good nourishment, and so on, but do nothing. And, and James nails all three. First of all, it's not taking evil, the evil of somebody else's suffering seriously. So it's denying of the seriousness of someone's suffering. But then, intriguingly, it's being very pleased with your own emotional response. It's, go in peace, keep warm, eat your fill. Probably said with a smile. And it, and it's a self-referential, uh, emotion. It's, it's pleased with yourself for feeling this. And yet, allowing the person to go away cold, hungry, and distraught, you having done nothing for them. So it seems to me that James in this one verse captures the whole scope of what I've been trying to say is, is, is sentimentality. <clears throat> so, the, the, the Christian faith and sentimentality I will maintain here, uh, are really on a collision course. Um, James calls it dead faith, what I've just described. <clears throat> um, evading evil or avoiding evil, denying evil, self-referential emotion, and no no action response. <clears throat> I mean, it's a, a very deep betrayal of, of the Christian faith across the board. Um, the issues of apologetics or of interaction with those who are not Christians are, to me, really important here. Because insofar as the Christian faith has invaded, excuse me, sorry again, insofar as sentimentality has invaded the Christian faith, has seduced Christians to be sentimental people, um, or corrupted the Christian community, I have seen... It creates a huge problem for those who are not Christians who are looking at the Christian faith with some real integrity. Is this thing true or not? Are these people who talk about knowing God, the God who created the cosmos and whose son came into this world to die for them, are they talking out of the side of their hat? Or what are they, is it true? Is it really real? Uh, and, and, uh, or, are these playing, people playing a comfortable little game with God as their crutch and their cheerleader? A, a social game and reassuring each other and, and, and sustaining a community built around sentimentality. Which is true. Uh, and I think it when I see a lot of people who are not Christians, what they 've seen of the Christian Church is a sentimental community people who who are are, are use misuse the Christian faith to sustain sentimental just light, nice ideas of a great world and God is good and praise the Lord and so on and don 't really engage in in uh, the the world as it is. Uh, the second challenge in terms of apologies first of all that I would say is 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 negative apologetics. That's Christians behaving way, in such a way that it makes it more difficult for people to, to believe that Christian faith is true. So we, rather than make it more persuasive for people, more attractive to people, we make it, we supply a negative impression of uh, following Christ, uh, that is, that is maybe even reprehensible to them. The second challenge is that if people who are not Christians are themselves sentimentalists, deep in the sentimental culture, which, of course, is a very, very widespread thing, they will, by virtue of their sentimentalism, have huge roadblocks and barricades built up to faith in Christ. And I'll I'll talk about that in a few minutes. Um, Because sentimentalism itself has all sorts of inbuilt resistance to hearing hearing the truth of the gospel. So... First of all, when the Christian faith is reduced by sentimentalism, you might think that the Christian church, the Christian groups, would be an oasis away from sentimentalism. Uh, The one place you could go to get away from sentimentalism, you think, might be the Christian church, given what I've just been describing about it. But unfortunately, that's not true. Uh, And I think our our failures cost us deeply. Uh, I'll run off some trial balloons for you. I I, uh, came across an editorial on how to create cynics. Now, this editorial doesn't include the word. The the word sentimentality doesn't exist in this, but it's what the whole thing is about. In other words, he doesn't use the word sentimentality, but it's what the whole article is about. I'll read you a couple of uh, paragraphs from this. This is how to create cynics. Okay, This is a Christian writing in a Christian uh, magazine. One of the greatest causes of cynicism among Christians is the way we lather God-talk over our lives in order to obscure realities we consider too painful to discuss directly. Consider this example from church life, though such situations are not confined to local churches. A minister is not happy in his place of service. He wonders whether whether he was right in accepting this call in the first place. He has dealt with painful personality conflicts, constant power struggles, and criticism. Now he is leaving. He's leaving because he can't take it anymore. His future is most uncertain. But he believes that he can't say any of these things. There is an unwritten code in the church, not just this church, that dictates how a minister says goodbye. He says, God spoke to me and is leading me to a different place of service at this time. I appreciate the opportunity to be your pastor. I now must move on to wherever God leads me next. Everybody on the inside of the situation knows what these words really mean. I am miserable here. I can't take it anymore. At this point, I would rather be unemployed than continue to serve here. I'm not sure exactly where God is in all of this, but in any case, I know that I must move on. I sure wish you would deal with the issues that have led me to this point, but I won't tell you what those are, so I doubt that you will ever actually deal with them. Uh, Going on. There are several reasons why most of us feel uncomfortable speaking directly about our confusion. One is that we want greater certainty about life and our decisions than we often feel. We want to be able to say that we are certain God has led us in such and such a direction and is now leading us in another direction. To articulate uncertainty seems to communicate a lack of confidence in God. And then over conflict... um, Christians also dislike telling the truth about conflict. The divisions that open up our relationship in our churches embarrass us. We think they should not occur. Perhaps we don't want to shake the faith of younger Christians by admitting that we just could not work out our differences. And so we paper over such conflicts with code talk about God leading us somewhere else. Uh, and then finally, if we could admit that we are fallen and uncertain and that we don't always know how to interpret every situation, can't always resolve our conflicts, and sometimes simply choose to move in new directions, we could break the power of the code and end the cynicism we create by misusing <coughs> words about God. And so what he's, again, he doesn't use the word sentimentality there, but, but uh, he's asking how to create cynics. Be sentimental. That's the way to create cynics out of reaction, out of response. Uh, and uh, here is a huge issue. Uh, uh, people suspect we are being dishonest. The non-Christian world is, is, suspects us of being dishonest, and they are right if this is, if this is the way things go. Uh, and the irony is that um, Christian people are the people who actually believe in sin. Some of the only people who really believe in sin. And so if we act and speak as if we don't, especially when it comes to where it matters to us, what are we doing? One of the major issues of Christian apologetics today is that the non-Christian world doesn't think sin is an issue. So who needs Jesus? Uh, and why should, we, you know, why should they think we need Jesus if sin isn't an issue? Uh, and we, do, we, we behave as if sin isn't an issue with us either. And uh, so, so I think we, uh, in, in this way we, we produce a negative apologetic. Um, self-reference again I'm comparing it to the Christian faith here at each step one, uh, the first of all the, the denial of evil and the self-reference <clears throat> I think there's dangerous ground for sliding into cynicism from, uh, from another direction as well you think of D.H. Uh, Lawrence's claim that we tend to fake feelings that we wish were real <clears throat> we don't have the real feelings we wish we did so we fake them and he claims the world is all gummy with them, uh, and this is a hard, hard thing to, to raise. But I, I, I think I, and I think it's important. Do you think that sometimes, once in a great while, we have witnessed faked feelings of worship? Do you think that we've ever seen faked feelings of intimacy with God? Maybe we've even done it ourselves, faked it ourselves. I think there's a danger in that we, I think rightly, uh, emphasize the importance of intimacy with God, an intimate walk with God. Huge amount of Christian literature and contemporary music is filled with glowing descriptions of life-changing encounters with God. Uh, but I feel the need to sort of caution, that's, those are good, that's wonderful, but let's keep it real. Let's make sure it's the real thing. For absolutely sure you don't fool God. And if it isn't real, you're not helping people either. You're conning people or you're, you're, you're giving people a, a weird uh, perspective on it. Um, the third area of engagement response, I'm not going to spend much time on because I think um, Christians have, evangelical Christians have gained a lot there in, in the last 30 or 40 years in terms of responsible engagement in what's the matter in society. I think there's huge direction, huge amount we need to go, enormous amount more we need to do on all sorts of issues in our, in our society. I'd love to see the Christ, the Christian, not necessarily as the church, but Christian people involved in all sorts of political, environmental, social issues that they're not involved in. But man, are we better off than we were 50 years ago? So I don't want to knock us where it's happening, it's working, it's, there's something, there's a lot of good things happening. There's people in every one of those fields doing good things that you can attach yourself to and and track on. And so uh, this is an area where, where there's, there's good examples uh, to, to, uh, to, to get our strong feelings of compassion and emotion in gear in actual action, in actual real-life uh, situations. Okay, I just, I wanted, the last section here, I want to talk about engagement with sentimental people and um, really with the non-Christian world, which is, which is stuck in sentimentality. Um, because those of us who are Christians here really are concerned to make the gospel persuasive, attractive into this world. Um, The idea of uh, the first element of sentimentality, see no evil, basically sidesteps the whole Christian diagnosis of the human problem. Uh, the Christian faith, without its diagnosis, is just chaos. It's nothing. It's an answer to, to a non-problem. So when sin is denied and trivialized or euphemized, the basic fabric of Christian theology comes un, un, unwound. Uh, the whole answer of redemption and salvation becomes irrelevant. Uh, so you see, sin is the problem to which the work of Christ is the solution. If sin is not an issue... the the cross, the atonement becomes, as it is for many people today an embarrassment it's so negative, it's so crude it's so barbaric who needs it? Uh, the salvation that Jesus brings is an optional salvation for people who feel they need it Okay, that's fine I've had lots of people sort of pat me on the head and say, oh, I'm glad for you to have this faith if you need it, that's great more power to you if you need this sort of thing uh uh, and, and, uh, but that person is totally untouched by the message of Christ He actually feels quite superior and condescending to me patting me uh, on the head uh, I always think of a guy who is a student with us <coughs> who, and this, this, his, his uh, words have just rung in my ears ever since he says, I didn't ask Jesus to die for me I think that's highly manipulative <laughs> You know, and, and he is right he is right. If sin isn't a problem, if sin isn't a major problem to be dealt with, what is this business of Jesus dying for you? I mean, if I were to offer to die for you by jumping in front of a truck out here, uh, you'd probably just need post-traumatic stress counseling or something like this. And I said I did it because I loved you. It'd be, I mean, is why? What is the what is the connection there between my death, which I claim is on your behalf, and and uh, and you? Well. If you were in front of the truck and I got you out of being in front of the truck and was killed in that process, then that's a totally different ball game. Then, then it would be an expression of my love for you, that I risked my life and gave up my life to get you out from in front of the truck. But if you don't believe you're in front of the truck, all my talk about how much I love you and are going to jump in front of the truck for you is just, you know, you ought to lock me up. Look for the straitjacket uh, because it doesn't correspond to anything. And I would suggest that a huge number of people who are... J- your classmates working side by side with you believe just that. Who needs Jesus? Uh, why? You need, OK, it's nice for you to have faith, but because there's no connection to the reason that Jesus had to come, the problem that Jesus is, is, was there to solve. Um, so so uh, it, a loss of that sense of evil and the reality of the seriousness of it, is, is a loss of the whole coherence of, of Christian theology. Also, we need to be clear about self-referential emotions as well. If we are Christians and our own emotions about ourselves are the center of our lives, we we really miss the importance of, hey, there's a whole world out there that God has created and that's a meaningful world to God. You may only be concerned with what's going on inside your head, between your ears somewhere, but there's a big world out there that's important to God that he would like you to be involved in as well. God takes it very seriously. He made it. Uh, we talk about it, uh, the, in, in ter- the, the problem of sometimes people having no sense of other. Having no sense of other. That means everything that happens to them, they relate to only insofar as it impacts them. There's no sense of the real reality of another world or the a, a whole creation being out there. Whatever happens is only grasped in terms of its impact on them, how it makes them feel. Or a friend totals his car and the response, oh, what a bummer, I was going to borrow his car next weekend. That's uh, self-referential uh, and, and, and no room out there for the real problem, only how it impacts me. Uh, so the Christian faith is all about a real world out there. Genesis 1.1 is God creating a very, very real world uh, outside of your head. Uh, it is solid and... It will push back at you if, we ign- if you ignore it, and if you ignore the evil found in it. Uh, sentiment- sentimentally, uh, sentimentality filters out, uh, effectively, uh, all sorts of dissonance that God puts in people's lives. God sometimes puts anxiety and fear into people's lives that they would stop dead in their tracks and think where they're going and what their life is about. Sentimentality can process that. It can take fear, anxiety, guilt, shame, alienation, loneliness and turn it into something sort of warm and uh, remove any urgency or seriousness from it. Uh, there's no need to change or to repent or to rethink. Sentimentality can domesticate all these feelings into things that are pleasant. Uh, so that it's okay to live without God. Uh, Sentimentality sort of homogenizes them by distraction and displacement and so forth. Uh, Interesting what you see in the scripture itself. Jesus, uh, remember when he goes to his hometown in Nazareth in in Luke chapter 4, very early in his ministry, he stands up to preach and he opens uh, Isaiah and and, and speaks about... uh, The Messiah, and he says, this is happening right now, in your presence. He's basically saying, this is, this verse in Isaiah is about the coming of the Messiah, you've been looking forward to for centuries. I am He. This is me. This is happening right now. Here I am. I'm the one that Isaiah was speaking of. And, and, uh, uh, right in your presence, the long-awaited Messiah, I am He. And, and, uh, you might have thought, you see, their response would either be, wow, fantastic, you're here, praise God, where do we go, tell us what to do, How should, What are you going to, what's happening next, where do we go, uh, thank God for answering our prayers, or, no, you're not the Messiah, we know who you are, you're just Joseph's son, you grew up next door to us, we know you couldn't be anything fancy uh, and big like this, either one of those would be in a sense appropriate to what he'd said, either it, if it's true, good grief, this is fantastic, if it's not true, it's a scam, and the guy's a, 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 a um, just a complete uh charlatan, but what did they say Remember what they say he has a, has such a nice way with words he's so well spoken you know <laughs> think of that he said here's the messiah that you've waited for for hundreds of years, and oh, he has such a nice way with words, such a nice boy. We always liked him as he was growing up <coughs> and and uh and, and you know, th- this is a sentimentality that, that refuses to think, to engage in hard things to think about, and things that have very real uh, consequences to to their action. Uh, and and then, of course, Jesus was not content to leave it there. Pushed them and pushed them and pushed them. So he finally broke through their sentimentality, and then they try and throw him off a cliff and kill him. So uh, so so it's, it's a really interesting uh, uh, take. Same thing with the, if you look at Ezekiel 33, when he's prophesying the destruction of the nation, Ezekiel 33, 30 and following, uh, God, he's warned by God, you're going to prophesy, and so I want you to say, but people will think you're singing love songs. And, uh, just be warned that you'll be treated, you'll be treated as a celebrity crooner, and, and uh, that's what they'll think of you. And that's just what happens. But it, it's a, it, it's a tremendous disconnection, you see, from the seriousness of a message. Huge seriousness and, and uh, but sentimentality uh, can parry that, deflect it, distract itself from it, and and never really hear it. <clears throat> I just say a word about what I found as a place of contact of the Christian faith with people stuck in in, in sentimentality. Um, I think they 're out of the reach of normal Christian argument. Um, and I think what we can do as Christians is we, we can start knowing that if people deny what is real, somehow, somewhere, reality is going to push back. It's not just going to be us that says, oh, you've denied this, but reality itself will push back. Uh, and we must look and see and be aware of where that pushback is to try and encourage it, help them to understand it. Um, because reality doesn't adapt to our self-deceptions. Um, so, uh, and I think we can see, maybe you can, you've seen this in your own experience, very often people start thinking about God, worrying about God, concerned about whether they know God or not, whether there's any God or not, only when stuff starts to go wrong. Remember we, we had a men's retreat in our church. I go to this. My wife and I going to this African American church for a number of years now and we went to a retreat and we went around just the whole room of the guys that were there and, and they said, what started you off to come back or to come to the Christian faith? Well, most of them had, uh, as adults had, hadn't just grown all the way up through. Uh, and almost always it was death or divorce. Somebody dying close to them or someone divorced or their own divorce. So it was a huge invasion, huge trauma that had turned them around and got them to think uh, really in a totally new way about, about God. Uh, God's reality brings a reality check to us if we has, have ears to see. And it's important that we try and help people see uh, our own brokenness. And you think of the prodigal son. Uh, didn't come to himself until he was very, very, very hungry and had no money at all left. And only then did he come to himself and decide, good grief, what a fool not to go home. Um, <clears throat> Another angle that I found helpful, and, and this is with some of our students, um, is the realization that perhaps in my sentimentality, I have become a very shallow person. There's a interesting poet called David McCord who has this, this isn't in one of his, poet, uh, his poems, but I, I found this in his writing. He was talking about someone that he did not hold in great respect, but he said, uh, deep down he is very shallow. Now that's, that's, that's really pretty brutal when you think about it. Deep down he is very shallow. Now that's, there's no reason in the world why that can't be a very real danger to any one of us. Deep down he is very shallow. But what a terrible thing to say about someone made in the image of God, capable of so much more. Uh, there's no depth to us. Go as deep as you want and you still get shallowness, superficiality, self-preoccupation, triviality, self-indulgence, vanity. That's all you get. That's as, as deep as you want to dig. And that's exactly what sentimentality does to us. And, and my point is, with reality pushing back, some people begin to realize, good grief, is this all there is to me? Is this all there is? And I think there's an openness to, th- to look afresh to just take a step back and to really question about that, um, sometimes. Uh, I think of the, some of Jesus' beatitudes, or I would call one of them a malattitude, in uh, Luke 6, how we can laugh now, uh, and, and, uh, uh, live in a utopia of niceness, but, uh, it will end in mourning and weeping. And that's more the sentimental option, is the malattitude of demanding to laugh now. Keep everything happy, keep everything light, keep you all, all upbeat, and, and uh, don't let anything upsetting, cruel, complex get in our, in our way. And uh, Jesus is predicting we will end mourning and weeping. Or we can take the brokenness of the world seriously as God takes it and work against it with God's help. The strange truth of the beatitude of Jesus is that those who mourn now will be comforted and blessed. Uh, mourning not as some sort of nostalgia or pity, but taking evil, grieving over evil as God grieves over evil. Uh, and and uh, that, that, I think, is a, is a huge uh, call to us that beatitude of uh, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. As we deal with the downside of ourselves and the world around us, there's a kind of mourning that Jesus is teaching here that is uh, ultimately blessing. That's not just getting stuck being a gloomy person at all. It's ultimately comfort and blessing uh, by engaging in what's broken in the world in, 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 a, in the serious way that he does. Uh, What sort of person do we become if we deny and trivialize our own sin? Well, we become self-righteous and pompous, and self-satisfied and self-deceived, and eventually miserable. Uh, What sort of person do we become if we trivialize our own suffering? we become fake and hollow and phony, and we become pretend good Christians. Uh, We get so many people coming with us who have never been allowed to express their doubts. Because doubt is bad, and, and uh, you don't talk about it. And that is the way to really give doubt power, that enormous power, is to never dare talk about it. The only way to really deal with it is to put it on the table in front of us and, and, and uh, uh, have a close look at it. Uh, who do we become if we don't relate to other people in their suffering? If we just uh, can't engage in other people's suffering? Well, we become very phony, too, in, in, a, in a different way. Selfish, very shallow and superficial. Um, I guess for many people, their most important relationship is with their TV set or with the Internet and because uh, those are all very much in your control. No danger of them taking more of your time and money and energy than you plan on. Um, what, what, what sort of person do, you, do we become if we uh, don't honestly confront conflict with other people? We become afraid. We're on the run. I know people who moved and moved and moved again or changed jobs and changed jobs and changed jobs again because they won't resolve conflict with roommates, with people they work with, and is just on the run, uh, and, 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 uh, because of the, the intrusion of conflict. So, uh, I don't think people want to be dishonest, shallow, hollow, phony, and so on. Uh, or, or without a sense of other. I think they see that in others and they see it as reprehensible in others. Uh, so I think there's a place there where we can try and help people to see, wow, yes, there's a, there's a great deal more to life if you see it with a bigger, with a big, a wider, uh, through a wider lens. Um, so here, just to conclude here, I've talked a lot about, um, uh, what is sentimentality, what is its impact, and it's, and sort of the interface with the Christian faith? Um, if, and tried to say that it cuts in two ways, one that it can affect us adversely and corrupt, seduce our Christian experience, our discipleship, uh, which makes us less than we should be, and also makes us bad advertisements or bad arguments for, for Christ, uh, out there, but it also in, in other people in people's lives who are not Christian it can be a, a huge barrier around them, uh, because they don't even see the problem to which Christ is the solution. The the, the wonderful paradox that's echoed all through the scripture in many different ways is if, if we're honest about brokenness and sin and cruelty in Christ, that honesty can become redemptive. Uh, draws us, can draw us nearer to God. Uh, and a much more fulfilling life at a much deeper level. Not fulfillment aimed at as a superficial buzz, but real fulfillment in life that, as you know, that the kinds of situations you get in where you may be very costly, may be very difficult, but you're involved in maybe helping someone get through something. And there's something wonderful knowing that you could actually help someone that you were actually able to do it. and It may have been costly to you, but there's something deeply fulfilling in that. So I'm not saying at all we must sort of put our head down and suffer uh, and be miserable uh, because sentimentality is wrong. Not at all. It's a a far deeper life that uh, God is promising us as we have his response to brokenness, evil in the world. The Christian faith makes a terrible diagnosis but it has a magnificent hope. We can't fast forward to the hope without reckoning on the diagnosis and living in the reality of the diagnosis with honesty. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let me end there.